My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects Podcast. It's another episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects. Today we're on episode 26, and now officially over halfway through this project. In the last episode, we discussed the Mormon migration to Illinois, and some of the healing miracles performed by Joseph Smith as the Mormons established the city of Nauvoo. Now, for our story purposes, we're still deep in the year 1839. Now, it goes without mentioning, but the world, and especially America, was very different in 1839. For example, on January 2nd of 1839, the first ever photo was taken of the moon by a French photographer. On March 9th of 1839, the Prussian government would do something considered quite drastic at the time and limit the work week for children to just 51 hours. The slackers. If you're wondering about that Prussian government, 32 years from now, they'll organize all their states to become the German Empire. In the year of 1839, the year we're discussing in this podcast, England will sign a declaration of guaranteed independence for the Belgium Empire. At the time in 1839, this guarantee would seem quite ho-hum, but when Germany declares war against France and decides to march through Belgium to flank the French, that move will drag England into the war to support the French and ignite World War I. So, the political maneuverings taking place in 1839 will have some deep impacts. Now, the same can be said in America. America in 1839 had just 26 states, and the federal government didn't have the power at the state level that it has today. This back and forth, pushing and pulling between the federal and state governments, will eventually shove the U.S. into civil war. In the year 1839, the state and federal laws will start to push against each other. A great example of this at the time is the story of Margaret Morgan. Margaret Morgan was a black woman who, in 1832, left Maryland to live in Pennsylvania. Abolitionist laws in Pennsylvania allowed Margaret to live her life as a free woman. However, Margaret had never been actually emancipated, so her former slave owner in Maryland hired a slave catcher named Edward Prigg to hunt her down in Pennsylvania and bring her back to Maryland. So, in 1837... Prigg and his henchmen assaulted and abducted Margaret Morgan and her children. Margaret Morgan had delivered children while living in Pennsylvania, which officially made them free citizens. But Prigg didn't care. He took them back to Maryland and sold Margaret and her children back into slavery. Now, it was law in the state of Pennsylvania that no Negro person could be carried out of the state and put back into slavery. So Edward Prigg had broken the law. Prigg was arrested by Pennsylvania officials and brought up on charges of abduction. In 1839, Pennsylvania court would find Prigg guilty of abduction. But Prigg knew there was a federal law in place. The Fugitive State Law of 1793 didn't allow fugitives to escape ownership of their masters. So here we have an example of Prigg who had broken state law but was obeying federal law. Prigg would ultimately appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court would reverse Pennsylvania's decision and free Edward Prigg. The Supreme Court justices referred to the commonly held view at the time 
that the southern states in the Constitutional Convention of 1787 would not have agreed to the U.S. Constitution if the Fugitive Slave Clause had not been included. So Prigg was freed, but it was evident that the federal and state governments weren't on the same page. The United States federal government of 1839 didn't do a good enough job protecting the personal freedoms of Americans. So should we be surprised if on November 28th of 1839, an American met with President Martin Van Buren to discuss the fact that a state had forced and driven thousands of Americans off their lands and out of the state, and that Van Buren, who was a meticulous note-taker, cared so little about the meeting that it didn't even make his personal journal. Today we're going to discuss Joseph Smith's meeting with the President of the United States, but first, our object. Today we'll discuss the Law of Common Consent. So, what is the Law of Common Consent, and how did it come about? We're going to back up a bit in our story as we reveal this object and its origins. In the year 1830, Joseph Smith received a revelation that stated, quote, and all things shall be done by common consent in the church, end quote. If you'll remember back in episode 7, we discussed the official organization of the Mormon church. When Joseph Smith and the first members got together to start the church, Joseph and the leaders were sustained by a common vote. Since that time, all major callings and announcements have been sustained by common consent vote within the Mormon church. But why common consent? Why doesn't the prophet just direct the church as he sees best? A modern-day Mormon church leader named Neil A. Maxwell has said the following, quote, Unless the principle of free agency is operated in righteousness, men do not progress to ultimate salvation and the heavenly kingdom hereafter. Accordingly, church officers are selected by the spirit of revelation and those appointed to choose them, but before the officers may serve in their positions, they must receive a formal sustaining vote of the people over whom they are to preside, end quote. So, Joseph Smith said he was directed by God to put the law of common consent into place so that all Mormons could use their free agency to vote upon the laws and the people being put in place. Now, not only are church officers sustained by common consent, but the same principle operates for policies, major decisions, acceptance of new scripture, and other things that affect the lives of Mormons. The Mormons would vote to canonize the Book of Commandments and the people called to serve missions. Now, can a leader hold an office in the Mormon church without the common consent of the people? Joseph Smith said, quote, No man can preside in this Mormon church in any capacity without the consent of the people. The Lord has placed upon us the responsibility of sustaining by vote those who are called to various positions of responsibility, no man, should the people decide to the contrary, could preside over any body of Mormons in this church, and yet it is not the right of the people to nominate, to choose, for that is the right of the priesthood. End quote. So the law of common consent allowed everyday Mormons the rank and file to have a say in the direction of the church. Now, how did the Law of Common Consent play into the history in the episode today? After Joseph Smith arrived with the Mormons to the renamed Nauvoo, Illinois, Joseph's mind was laboring around the idea of petitioning the federal government for compensation for the lives and land lost in the Missouri War. After all, 
Missouri had driven out of its state American citizens. Joseph Smith had great faith in the Constitution and the Democratic government. So Joseph Smith tasked Sidney Rignan to begin to collect letters of recommendation from local Illinois officials and to also collect stories from the Mormons around the wrongs that had been heaped upon them in Missouri. Joseph Smith then took this to the Mormon membership in Illinois. Now, through a vote of common consent, it was determined that Sidney Rignan should carry the Mormons' petitions to President Van Buren, along with Joseph Smith and Elias Higby. Elias Higby was a former judge in Caldwell County, Illinois, and he knew the law. So, with the vote of common consent from their fellow Mormons, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rignan, and Elias Higby were off to Washington, D.C. to attempt to meet with the President of the United States. Now, we should note that just a short way into their journey to Washington, D.C., Sidney Rigdon had to withdraw from the trip. If you'll remember in our last episode, we discussed the Mormons' battle with malaria. Sidney had been healed of his bout of malaria, but the travel was too much on his recovering body, and he had to withdraw. So, he gave all the letters of recommendation to Joseph Smith, and Joseph and Elias took the trip to Washington. Now, before I go too much further, you'll have to let me rant for just a minute. The hardest thing about researching and discussing this historic trip for the Mormon prophet is the fact that Joseph Smith at this time didn't keep a personal journal. We don't have a personal account of the events that took place. President Van Buren didn't think the meeting important enough to write it in his journal either. So all we have are a few letters from Elias Higby and journal entries from the stories shared by Joseph and Elias after they returned to Nauvoo. So, if you're listening to this and you aren't keeping a regular journal, just know that you're making it very hard for upcoming generations to do podcasts about your life. and rant. Now, of the letters that Elias Higby sent back to the Mormons in Nauvoo, we have a great story of an event that took place while they were traveling through West Virginia on their way to Washington, D.C. On December 15th of 1839, Joseph Smith and Elias Higby were on a stagecoach with a number of passengers crossing the Cumberland Ridge mountain range. According to the story, Joseph couldn't even use his name as there were delegates from Missouri also headed to Washington, D.C., and he didn't want them to know who he was or why he was headed to D.C. So, they took a brief stop along the way so the stagecoach driver could get a drink, and apparently, something spooked the horses when they broke into a full gallop down the winding cliff toward the valley. The passengers were frightened as the horses were sprinting full speed, and they assumed the coach would drift off the path and dash them to pieces. One woman even attempted to throw her young baby out the window, assuming its chances for survival were better than hers were about to be when the coach inevitably crashed. According to the letter, Joseph Smith stopped her, kicked open the door, jumped around the edge of the careening coach, and caught the driver's seat. He then pulled himself up to the driver's seat, got hold of the reins, and stopped the out-of-control stagecoach. All the passengers were extremely grateful to Joseph Smith, and the men on the coach marveled at his strength and courage. None knew that it was the Mormon prophet. So, finally, on November 28th of 1839, the Mormons arrived in Washington, D.C. Now, can you imagine going to Washington, D.C. and just walking up to the White House and asking to meet with President Trump? Today, if you even touch the fences surrounding the White House, you'll get added to some list. But in the 1830s, the president was available and the White House was open. So the next day, Joseph Smith and Elias Higby showed up at the White House and requested a meeting with President Van Buren. Now, you'll have to let me pause the story here again a bit. 
I think this situation shows a bit of the naivety of the Mormon prophet. President Van Buren will lose his re-election campaign in the next few years. Van Buren knew he was in a tough spot and was worried about losing political clout by siding against a state of Democrats, his party, and joining the cause of some religious extremists. Joseph Smith had a potentially strong hand to play here. He could have promised President Van Buren the entire Mormon vote. He could have pressed him that the Mormons were relocating to Illinois and could help sway that state. But instead, Joseph Smith attempted to press upon the president the Mormon struggles and afflictions. This was a very pivotal time in the history of the young Mormon church. They felt that the Americans everywhere were conspiring to end their cause, and here was Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, meeting with the most powerful man in the United States of America. In the end, it was all for naught. Joseph Smith would record, quote, I had an interview with Martin Van Buren, the president, who treated me very insolently. And it was with great reluctance that he listened to our message. But when he heard it, he said, Gentlemen, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. End quote. The president was unwilling to side against the state of Missouri. Joseph Smith and Elias Higby then attempted to meet with as many senators and state representatives as they could, hoping their cause would be taken before Congress. Their petitions were received by Illinois Senator Richard M. Young. The people of Illinois were sympathetic of the Mormons after seeing the refugees pouring into their state. Senator Young promised to introduce their petition to Congress. The lengthy petition detailed the difficulties the Mormons had endured since 1833 in Missouri and concluded, We make our appeal as American citizens, as Christians, and as men, believing that the high sense of justice which exists in your honorable body will not allow such oppression to be practiced upon any portion of the citizens of this vast republic with impunity, but that some measures which your wisdom may dictate may be taken so that the great body of people who have been thus abused may have redress for the wrongs with which they have suffered. Joseph Smith would also submit certificates and affidavits verifying the persecuting and proving their ownership of Missouri land. In all, there were almost 500 testimonials against the state of Missouri accompanying their petition to Congress. Congress would finally hear the plight of the Mormons on January 28, 1840. But again, it fell upon deaf ears. The senators wouldn't even discuss the wrongs committed against the Mormons. They only wanted to debate whether the federal government had the authority to step in at a state level. The prevailing view among the American senators, especially among Southern politicians, was that questions like those raised by the Mormons were clearly state concerns. It was felt that the Constitution provided no authority for national intervention. To add insult to the Mormons' injury, the Judiciary Committee issued this counsel to the Mormons, quote, The petitioners may, if it seems proper, apply to the justice and magnanimity of the state of Missouri for redress, an appeal which the committee feels justified in believing will never be made in vain by the injured or oppressed, end quote. Yes, Congress recommended the Mormons petition the very state that had issued an extermination order against them. So, frustrated, Joseph Smith and Elias Higby returned to Nauvoo, Illinois. In the next episode of this podcast, we'll detail the ways these events changed Joseph Smith and the Mormon Church. The federal government was unwilling to aid them in their troubles. 
Maybe, if these troubles persisted, it was time to consider leaving the United States altogether. Now, going back to our object. Joseph Smith was sent to Washington, D.C. by common consent. How does common consent affect the Mormon Church today? If you want to see this principle in action, wander into any Mormon church on Sunday. At the beginning of every service, the person directing the meeting will recommend fellow Mormons that have been called to serve in different roles in their local church. All of these callings will be voted on by local members by raising of their hands. In October and April of every year, you can stream the Mormon Church's General Conference where today's Mormon Church leadership addresses the global church. In the Sunday morning session, the members vote to sustain the Mormon leadership by common consent. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects, Episode 26, The Law of Common Consent. As always, if you have comments or questions, you can reach out to me directly at Joe, H-O-M-C, historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to my podcast on iTunes. Feel free to share it on social media, and please leave me a review on iTunes. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening. 